You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire, one hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tēnā koutou katoa, ko, tēnā koutou katoa, ko Liam Henson tōku ingoa. Nō mai, haere mai, ki te waia, mō tēnei rā. Ki ora, and welcome to The Wire for Ramane Thursday. Uh, I hope that you are all doing well. I'm your host, Liam, and I'll be with you for the next hour. If I can nay, coming up on the show, I spoke to Lisa Williams from Pharmac about the liquid ibuprofen shortage. I also had a chat with Sarah Helm from the New Zealand Drug Foundation to talk about a dangerous altered form form of acid that's currently circulating within Aotearoa. Jen Eldridge also comes onto the show to chat about her research into binary neutron star mergers, and Christine Cooper from Curtin University will be chatting about how echidnas do belly flops keep warm, as well as other methods. And lastly, I'll be talking to Cameron Adams for our first Eurovision segment of the year. Heaha or I would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces, so please get in touch to Kupa Tuhimai. You can text me on 5395 or wire my give us a call in shoot on 309-3879. Also, after the show, ka awa e wareware i ahe kāna koto te whakaroki in e korero anō he pakiari roki roki mārana i te pai tukutuku o irirangi pōho mi haere ki 95BFM i re katikom. You can catch all these stories and more bike podcast on the 95BFM website 95BFM.com I don't know how to say this. Bitter Goose Scale? <laughs> You're not a child of the 80s. If you were, you would know the film with a similar name. The star is Beetlejuice. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> the Wire. A shortage of ethics brand liquid ibuprofen is seeing the drug put on strict allocation. Due to unprecedented demand and shipping delays, the painkiller medication is seeing lower stock in Aotearoa that will likely last until the end of the month. Dr. Stuart Delzeal from Starship Children's Hospital has called the shortage into concern, saying that it was for it was major an a major issue for community pharmacies considering the fact that it forces some to shop between different pharmacies and stores. To learn more about the issue, I spoke to Lisa Williams, the Director of Operations at Pharmac. She first ran me over some details of the issue. So um, what we know is that there is some constrained supply. There is product in the country, uh, but what the supplier is doing is releasing that on allocation. So that means that when the orders come in from pharmacies, they're just checking to make sure that there is equitable distribution of the stock that's available around the country. Where is this shortage coming from? So um, the company has basically told us that there was a spike, unprecedented in demand uh, for the medicine, and then that resulted in some lead times for resupply. I do want to assure your listeners that there's more product on the way. Um, it's actually on a boat now at sea, and we're expecting it to arrive end of January, early February. Why is there unprecedented demand right now? 
So, I mean, obviously there was um, lots of winter illnesses um, and that's been happening all around the world. Um, and but, but as I said, it's unprecedented. Generally, we know that that's going to happen. There'll be a spike in demand over winter, but this has been more than in, in other years. What consequences could this shortage lead to, do you know? Well, I mean, obviously, well, hopefully there is sufficient product to get us through until the new product arrives and um, additionally the supplier is actually bringing in sufficient supply for 10 months demand in this shipment that's arriving with more to come in May so this is a short-term issue uh, and we hope that there are other funded alternatives that people can use if they can't get access to ibuprofen. Is Pharmac worried about the shortage right now or are you confident that this will be okay in the short term or even long term future? We're really pleased that the supplier is bringing in a significant volume of product which will arrive within the next two to three weeks. So we don't think that this is a long-term issue um, and we're hopeful that the equitable distribution of the product and the availability of funded alternatives will get us through until that arrives. While ibuprofen is often seen as a regular uh, go-to over-the-counter medicine that could be switched out for other painkillers like paracetamol, there are situations that require their usage. Where what might one need ibuprofen and are their needs being prioritised right now? We are aware that there are certain situations where ibuprofen is the best product to use uh, and we're hopeful that there's sufficient product available to meet the needs of those people that can't use an alternative product. What steps are Pharmac currently taking to manage the ongoing shortage? So we've communicated with community pharmacies about the supply disruption and given them all the information that we have and we're maintaining close contact with the supplier and monitoring the arrival of the shipment that is going to restock the market. What can people at home currently do uh, if they are struggling to access ibuprofen? What steps can they take to either quell uh, whatever it is that they need the ibuprofen for or is there anything that they can do to access it easier? Well, I guess one of the key things to do is if the pharmacy that you go to to get your funded dispensing doesn't have ibuprofen oral liquid in stock, ring around some other pharmacies and see if they have it. And around what time are you expecting uh, the shortage to be uh, quelled or what time are you expecting it to sort of calm down? Yeah, so what we've been advised is that 10 months' worth of stock will arrive in um, the end of January, early February. Uh, So we're really hopeful that um, within the next few weeks, this issue will be resolved. That was Pharmac Director of Operations, Lisa Williams, chatting about the ongoing liquid ibuprofen shortage in Aotearoa. I don't know, and and frankly, the whole thing gives me the heebie-jeebies. The Wire. This is uh, a bit of Nadia Reid uh, with O Canada, who is playing opening for Marlon Williams tonight at the Civic. There will be no more news after this. Stick around here on The Wild on BFM.
It's fucked. Yeah, it is. The Wire. The New Zealand Drug Foundation has reported on a new strain of LSD that is circulating around the country, particularly within music festivals. The drug, named 25B-NBOH, can form side effects not usually present in normal LSD, despite the two drugs looking identical. Drug-checking services at New Year's Festival Rhythm and Vines found examples of it, amongst roughly 750 other drugs that were checked. To learn more about it, what the signs of it are, and how users could avoid them, I had a chat with the New Zealand Drug Foundation's executive executive director, Sarah Helm. She first gave me more information about what's known about the strain of LSD so far. It's called 25B in BOH, um, and it's uh, essentially a very potent psychedelic mixed with a stimulant, and in very small doses it can cause overdose. So a similar drug, NBOM, um, has raised the body temperature, for example, and that then creates a whole lot of pressure on your kidney as a result of it and pressure on your kidneys. You, you then get too hot, that can cause seizures, severe dehydration and your body can shut down and that has created both hospitalisations and fatalities globally and nationally so we are concerned about it. It's also been linked with um, increased psychosis and suicide so it's definitely something to be uh, very cautious about if you do have some tabs sitting around at home that you've purchased over the last couple of months we're strongly urging people to um, get them checked and got a bit of advice about that if you want. How do uh, these drugs differ from regular LSD other than the risks that they pose? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, LSD is relatively harmless. It isn't combined with a stimulant. Um, even if you did combine it with a stimulant, it's got less of a negative effect on your body and your mind. Um, so it's it's quite a different experience for people. Uh, so, yeah, uh, visually, though, you can't tell the difference. So we, we picked it up at Rhythm and Vines. Our drug checking team did there. They had four completely different people from different regions bring in samples that looked even different. So, you know, LSD tabs are little bits of blotting paper that are usually coloured, sometimes they have a little picture on them. They were all quite different. So um, anyone who is listening to this that has uh, uh, an LSD, what they think is LSD at home, give it a test so you can get it tested in a few different ways. 
Uh, one is to come to some clinics. We've got one coming up in Auckland on Saturday, the 21st. I hope, hope I've got that date right. You can check it out on the level. Um, and uh, Or you can pick up a what's called a reagent test. Uh, I think they're about 20 bucks off the top of my head from uh, the Hemp Store or Cosmic Corner. You can buy them online. Um, and it's quite a straightforward test. If it doesn't respond positively to that, presume it's something that's not good for you and bring it in for further checking if you like. If you can't access any of that and you're on a buzz and you just want to take your thing and hope for the best, uh, be concerned about that. Make sure there's somebody there to look after you. Uh, but also, it shouldn't taste. LSD doesn't taste. So if it's, uh, we have a little slogan, if it's a bitter, it's a spitter. Has this drug been around for a while, either internationally or within Aotearoa? Yeah, I mean, it was actually banned by the... Um, banning doesn't, you know, necessarily get rid of the issue, but um, it was banned back in 2018. I think it was in Sweden. It uh, has been around a little bit, but, um, yeah, we, we've uh, seen a concerning amount of it, obviously, in one place from different regions, so um, we just... Urging caution among people, and it's a good habit to get into anyway to check your drugs. Take it slow when you're when you're um, taking anything. How do drugs like two five B and B O H originate? You know, our problem is we have a, a, a lack of regulation, so we have drugs that are just banned, and the drugs that people are seeking are generally, and LSD is a really great case in point, lower harm than the substitutes that are created by the black market in order to get around the rules and regulations. So, uh, you know, the perverse incentives of our current drug laws is it, it encourages the black market to come up with new, novel, more potent uh, in order to slip through the border more easily uh, substances. Um, and that creates danger for a community of people that after decades have been told, don't do drugs, kids, they're wrong, that that hasn't worked. And in fact, in the case of LSD, of course, you'll know it's got huge therapeutic benefits. You know, we have evidence that it can reverse, you know, treat uh, addiction, alcohol addiction in particular. Uh, it can be a long-term treatment potentially for depression, uh, PTSD, anxiety. And there's also some emerging evidence around its ability to uh, positively influence things like autism and other neurodiversity. So... Yeah, it's got a whole lot of reasons why people might be um, ha having a, a stash of LSD at home, either to, uh, therapeutic or for um, enjoyment purposes, yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of the sort of health benefits around LSD. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, not yeah. recommending people run out and try that themselves. Mm. If you are, no judgment here whatsoever. I hope that we see clinical provision of these um, drugs once the um, evidence is clear. Um, but certainly the evidence is um, mounting on, um, particularly on the treating addiction and the uh, mental health issues. Is it specifically uh, drugs like 25 b and BOH? Are they more prevalent at music festivals or could this make its way into general stocks of LSD? Yeah, actually just to touch on that other point, you've got a wonderful University of Auckland uh, research team working on LSD as a treatment therapy. Anyway, coming back to that, look, we presume come from four different regions, but there's some batches out there that have been sold to people for a range of reasons. So certainly don't think that you've purchased it away from a music festival, it's definitely safe. 
presume that presume that it needs to be checked would be my uh, strong caution. If you can't check it, take it really, really slow. Don't down a whole tab. That would be a, a real mistake. And have somebody with you to call for help. What effects does drug decriminalisation have on making these sorts of altered drugs uh, less easy to get into spaces like music festivals or wherever else? Yeah, I mean, decriminalisation is not a full solution. What, it will, what that would do was, is deal with the 100 New Zealanders that are prosecuted and convicted, prosecuted and convicted, I think, for um, LSD possession every year, which is kind of crazy when you think about the therapeutic benefits of it. And we know some people are using it for that purpose. Um, but um, we we also need to start thinking about the other side of it, which is the supply side. So drug checking is doing a wonderful job of giving us an intervention to prevent harm from them being not regulated. But imagine if you could choose between a black market substance or something that was sold on plain packaging in a chemist uh, with warnings and you know guidance attached to it and a clear dosage. It would be quite different from purchasing it from an unknown, not knowing what you're taking um, and uh, ending up with um, harm. So, yeah, we, we think it's probably time, especially with those lower harm substances, but actually the logic rings true even for the high harm ones. Convictions aren't deterring people from using them. And in this case, we're just pointing out again, there are some beneficial reasons for why you might consume this substance. Uh, so we need to have a good look at our archaic drug laws. Those were all of my questions. Do you have any final thoughts you would like to share with our listeners on this topic? I really encourage people to check out The Level. It's on Instagram, it's on the uh, interwebs uh, and Facebook. We've also got a TikTok account. Um, There's a whole lot of uh, harm reduction information on there and we've also particularly shared information about this um, concerning substance as well. That was the New Zealand Drug Foundation's Executive Director, Sarah Helm, chatting about a new altered form of LSD. For old times' <laughs> sake, yes or no, would you like to be leader of the National Party at some point? No, I'm just focused on what I'm doing. I'm one of those people that do it day by day, job by job. I'll save this clip and come back to it in five or ten years. <laughs> we'll see how it's aged. The Wire. We are going to go to a quick break right now and then be back with some more news after these messages. Bust out the sprinkler and set your lawnmower to stump. Gardens Music Festival is the brand new inner city garden boogie taking your summer by storm at the stunning new venue of Auckland Domain. Featuring a headline performance from living legend Fatboy Slim, plus LPGOB, Sedmo, Peking Duck, John Morales and more. Gardens Music Festival, Sunday, January 29th at Auckland Domain. Get your tickets now from gardensmusicfestival.co.nz. What's a seven-letter word for Street Fighter? No idea. I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club there's... A live tribute to Tame Impala, followed by DJs Carlotta, Milika and Katya. And tomorrow... A live tribute to Herbie Hancock, followed by Nick Timms and Grantis. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Jazz Cigarette, Bob Hope, Doobage, Jar Rastafari, Wacky Backy, Mez, Mary Jane, Marley, Chiba Chiba. Whatever you call it, Muggles. Marijuana Media has you covered. Every Thursday on 95 BFM Drive, join Chris Fowley from Normal for the good word on law reform, cannabis in the media, and the latest in green science. Marijuana Media. 
4.20 every Thursday on 95 BFM Drive, thanks to The Hemp Store. Visit them at 253K Road or shop online at hempstore.co.nz. What's his, what's his title? The uh, guy in charge, <laughs> Dr. Ashley Broom. Uh, the Director General of Health. <laughs> yeah. The Wire. The astrophysics researchers from the University of Auckland have recently released a report into the origins of binary neutron star mergers, colloquially dubbed cosmic factories. The team was led by Dr. Heloise Stevens, with inner teams led by Jen Eldridge, looking at how the events take place and what causes them. The scientists used a captured star merger that we viewed back in 2017 and analysed its beginnings before taking a look at how they produce elements like gold, silver and uranium. I had a chat with Jen Eldridge about their research and their findings. Well, one of the things to realise is that most stars aren't like our sun. They're not single stars on their own, they're two stars that orbit around each other. And, you know, when you have two massive stars, they end up dying. And when the stars die, they leave a stellar remnant, which in this case for these stars was neutron stars, which are like one huge bunch of these fundamental particles called neutrons. And as these things spiral in together, because they're so massive, they warp space-time and they spiral in faster and faster and then smash into each other. And they throw out all these big blobs of neutrons that then become these very large um, elements such as gold, um, silver, platinum, and even some uranium and other radioactive elements. And so they're producing all these really heavy elements that we actually need in technology around us. I mean, many of the elements in the computer screens everyone's probably staring at right now, um, listening to this, um, come from these cosmic factories making all these heavy elements. What effects does this have on the surrounding area? Um, well, if if you were a person standing nearby, it would be a very, very bad situation because it produces all these highly radioactive elements. Um, and they're actually decaying down at the same time. It's it's a hideously horrid environment of gamma ray radiation. So it, you, if you're the person, you would die. But, you know, you can see that there's this massive input of energy and material. And, of course, this is just in one tiny part of a galaxy, and it takes millions of years for that material to then go out into the next generation of stars. So once these events have produced all these elements, they actually pollute the next generations of stars. And when we look back through the history of the universe, we can trace how um, events like this have built up the amount of gold and silver and other elements. But of course, you know, this is just one cosmic factory and actually different types of stars produce different types of elements. And so we can even trace how the different cosmic factories making elements have made them at different rates. And so very early in the universe, it was very oxygen-rich because that produced very quickly. And it's probably only in the last few billion years that gold, silver, and these other heavy elements have actually become quite um, more, much more common than they used to be. Your research has been focused on the origins of these cos- cosmic factories. Could you b- briefly detail what you've discovered most recently? Yeah, so this is this paper we had recently, and we were looking at the first observed binary neutron star merger. And I, even though we've seen other things that probably were, this is the first time we knew it was two of these neutron stars smashing together because we detect- detected um, the merger in this new field of astronomy called gravitational wave astronomy, where we literally detect um, space-time itself oscillating backwards and forwards. Because these things are so um, massive and move so fast, they they send ripples through space-time. So we detected it through just seeing space itself vibrating, and then we were able to follow up and see that there was actually light coming from these objects, and so I was able to actually therefore track it down, which is all great, which means that we could also work out where this event happened. And it was in a distant galaxy, about sixty, sorry, about 120 million light years away, and we were able to study that galaxy. And everyone got really excited when they discovered this in 2017. But the problem was, 
when they analyzed the galaxy, they assumed every single star in it was a single star. The problem is we'd seen two stars in a binary merge, and so there must be other binaries in that. And so what we were able to do in the first time, because no one's been able to do this before, is we've made a model of that galaxy and model it and understand it, assuming that you know there's single stars, but also binary stars like the one that merged. And we actually get a different answer for when most of the stars formed. They're actually a lot older than what the previous earlier studies had suggested, because the previous earlier studies suggested maybe the stars are only like a few billion years old, but we found they're actually mostly much older, between 8 to 10 billion years old. So actually some of the earliest stars are formed earliest in um, our universe. And once we've got that information, we can then go and look in all our models to actually see, okay, so if these stars were formed 10 billion years ago, how, what was their life way that led to them forming today? And when you do that, again, because we've got a different age, we found that the pathways are very, very different to what other people have suggested. And actually the big mystery that our work has kind of indicated now is everyone else is thinking it takes a very short time from when the stars are born to when they have these mergers. And now we're suggesting actually it's much more likely that they take a much longer time to evolve, which throws up all sorts of questions. It says maybe that the universe has only recently become rich in gold and silver and didn't have a lot of those kind of elements very early in the universe. Um, but that's the way with science. You always end up with more questions than you start out with when you're looking at it. What could the consequences of that discovery be? What could the consequences of there being more gold and silver and heavy elements in the universe entail? Um, well, it's one of those stories of just trying to work out our own origins. And when we actually look at our planet and look at other planets recently forming, it's like, are we thinking that planets are all the same? And, and what this kind of suggests is that, you know, exactly when planets formed, because I mean, our planets formed about four and a half billion years ago, um, which is kind of in this in point. So maybe planets, if they're forming much more recently, are going to be much more gold rich than those that formed the very first planets probably had very little of any of these kind of materials. Um, because that change in the pathway is so different. But it also means if that is true, then the way stars in themselves in, uh, evolve is going to be very different. Because when they finally both die, the stars have to be much further apart. Because actually, these, these gravitational waves that I mentioned are what drives them spiraling in together. And, you know, if they're further apart, it takes longer for them to shrink down. If they're born very close together, then it takes... Um, a much longer time, uh, shorter time for them to spiral in together. So in some ways, we're also measuring that how close are these two neutron stars produced when they're first born. And that really constrains how stars evolve over their lifetime. So it's always just trying to pick together all these different things and trying to understand really how everything works, but also at the same time, the origins of all the elements around us on Earth. What has your involvement in this process been like? Um, so th this entire project came about from a Royal Society of New Zealand Marsden grant that I put in all the way back, I think, in 2018. Um, and so because we'd actually realized that everyone else had looked at this galaxy and hadn't used um, binary models to try and understand that galaxy, and we had those binary models, but we didn't have the technique of studying galaxies to work out what their history was. And so that's why we recruited Heloise, who came in and rewrote all this beautiful code to try and understand the galaxy using our models. And then she actually went further because then she realized, well, hang on, from the gravitational waves themselves, not only do we know, know about the galaxy, we also know quite a lot about the mass of those two neutron stars. And so then she was able to put all this stuff together. And of course, you know, we need to try and then understand what that means in terms of all the rest of the, what we know about stars, which I was able to contribute. Um, 
and so you get this really wonderful paper where we're starting to try and bring everything together, do something really novel for the first time. And the exciting thing is, what else can we do with this now? Because we've got a technique to understand the galaxies where things happen. And so we can apply this technique to many, many other things. What are your next steps of research on this topic likely to look like? Well, um, it, it depends on us being lucky. Because as I said, we've now got this mechanism. So if we see any event, it could be a binary neutron star merger or some type of stellar explosion, we can understand the history of the galaxy um, where that happened. Um, what's going to be happening in this year is the gravitational wave observatories, um, which are run by Lisa, uh, the LIGO Virgo Kangra uh, collaboration, are going to be um, studying uh, the gravitational waves and switch their observatories back on because they're extremely complicated pieces of equipment where you've got um, lasers shining down arms that are about four kilometers long. You've got to have vacuums in those arms, and so they're, they're hideously complicated, amazing pieces of technology, but they're going to have an observing run for a year. And so they're going to hopefully find more of these events, which means we won't just be relying on one of the binary neutron star mergers to understand what these events do. We'll actually have a population, hopefully, fingers crossed, depending on how many they find. And so we'll find out, like, did was this just a one really odd one? And many of the others are actually in much younger galaxies. Or is, like, all the binary neutron star mergers we see coming from much older galaxies? And it's also fitting into all the other observations that we've got, um, just to try and understand everything in one big picture, which is difficult, but also fun. That was Professor Jen Eldred from the University of Auckland chatting about her research into binary neutron star mergers. This is a sad, sad day. Um, BFM, the font of liberalism and tolerance at the <laughs> centre of the University of Auckland. The Wire. We're going to go to another quick ad block and be back with some news after this. Marlon Williams' My Boy Tour is coming to the Civic this Thursday and Friday. With a different special guest each night of the tour, Thursday sees our boy Marlon joined by Nadia Reid and Friday by Vera Allen. Marlon Williams and the Yarra Benders, performing songs from My Boy live at the Civic. This Friday is sold out. Tickets for this Thursday are going fast. Get yours now from Ticketmaster. DJ Fuckoff, back home for one night only. Blistering bangers, belligerent beats, sexy hardcore. With support from ET No Home and DJ Sweat. With her original Auckland show cancelled, Fizzy just couldn't let her leave without throwing down. DJ Fuckoff, this Thursday at Whammy Backroom. Tickets just 15 bucks. Get yours now from Under the Radar. Arcade Radio, Thursday night, 7 to 9pm. Classic Pants, scalding hot takes, advice on how to cuff your pants. It could only be Auckland's leading skate brand affiliated radio show. When I'm in a New York state of mind. For all that and a heavy dose of fine tracks, tune in to Arcade Radio, Thursday night, 7 to 9pm, with Mike, Jono, Eddie, Nat and special guests every week. Arcade Radio. Only on 95BFM. Children eat worms and, and bugs and all sorts of things when they crawl in around. The Wire. 
New research, new research from Curtin University over in Perth has recently been released, taking a look at the heat regulation that takes place in West Australian echidnas. Dr. Christine Cooper and her team utilised thermal vision to discover how these echidnas deal with a strong heat present in the region. Their methods are very unique, often utilising the complex tasks of blowing snot bubbles and doing belly flops to keep cool. It's currently uncertain whether or not these methods would work with, for humans. I had a chat with Dr. Cooper to learn more about her studies and echidnas in general. We found that echidnas can tolerate higher ambient temperatures than what they're supposed to be able to and we think that one of the mechanisms that contributes to this is that they can use thermal windows to dissipate heat and evaporative windows to also help lose heat by evaporative cooling. Uh, what prompted you to go into this research? Echidnas are monotremes that are supposed to have really low thermal tolerance, but they live all over the Australian continent, including the arid areas that have really extreme temperatures. And there has been some work that's demonstrated that they probably can tolerate higher temperatures than what they're supposed to be able to, but there hasn't really been a mechanism for how they can do this. And I had a PhD student who was working in the lab on echidnas looking at their um, response to temperature in terms of their metabolism and their evaporative water loss. And she noticed that when it got hot, they would blow bubbles through their nose at a higher frequency than normal. So then we thought perhaps that was facilitating evaporative cooling. And then more recently, we had an opportunity to thermally image wild echidnas in the field where they're going about their daily foraging. And we noticed that their nose tip was really cold. So this bubble blowing technique seems to be cooling the tip of their nose. And because they've got a big blood sinus underlying that tip, as the uh, water evaporates, it cools the blood. Another part of it that was uh, released in the research was that they also tend to use belly flops. How does that help them stay uh, cool? Uh, yes, yeah, so that is about um, dissipating heat as well, so cooling. So their ventral surface is um, quite bare. They don't have any spines. They've got really quite sparse fur in the West Australian echidnas. And that means that they can use that area as a thermal window. So that area is poorly insulated and they can lose heat through it. So if they can go and lay on a cold surface, then they can lose heat by conduction to that cold surface. So if they go and sit in a shady area on the ground, they can push their ventral surface on the ground and lose heat that way. So how has the process of using thermal vision helped this discovery out? It's a really neat way of measuring the surface temperature of an animal without having to impact on the animal. So we were able to use a telephoto lens on our thermal camera so we could measure the tip, the temperature of the tip of the snout from a distance of up to 20 metres away. Um, so the animal could be doing its own thing in the field without being disturbed and we could just film it from a distance and get those temperatures of an animal that's behaving naturally. Would the echidnas uh, being disturbed or being in a more, say, like uh, lab type space or in an enclosure, would that have affected your research in any way? It sometimes can because the animal's response to their environment will change. So if an animal is stressed or being handled, then it's going to change its blood flow, it's going to change its ventilation, its metabolism. So that can impact on its thermal imaging. And also an animal in an enclosed space, if you've got an animal in the laboratory, it's not experiencing the same environmental temperature as an animal outside. So for example, it can't dissipate heat to the sky, it can't radiate heat. Um, it's not getting the same um, convective heat loss from wind flow. So studying animals in the field lets us know how they actually interact with their environment. 
And speaking of environment, have you had any research into how it changes between different environments into the colder or warmer parts of Australia? No, that would be a really interesting study to do is to go and do the same sorts of thing in other parts of Australia, particularly in the southern areas where their echidnas um, are quite different. They've got fewer spines and they're much furrier and to compare their surface temperatures in those sorts of environments. But um, during her study, my PhD student, Justine, was able to measure the physiology of Tasmanian and West Australian echidnas and she did find um, some differences and some similarities between them. Do you think that uh, these sorts of methods or these sorts of issues that echidnas have only apply to that animal or are any other uh, rodents or any other Australian animals uh, likely to use these same more sort of like inward methods to keep themselves cool as well? No, so terrestrial animals always have to exchange heat with their environment. So all animals have an inevitable heat exchange. It's how they can manipulate that heat exchange that's really important. So terrestrial species are going to need to evaporate um, water to lose heat once the environmental temperature is higher than their body temperature. Um, because they can't use any other method, um, but it's how they use that evaporation. So some species will sweat, some pant, some lick, some just increase their cutaneous um, or decrease their cutaneous resistance. But echidnas have this really unique way of using their nose tip as an evaporative window. Is there anything that echidnas can do, say, with each other, with their relationship with other echidnas that can help them stay cool or anything like that? They are supposed to be solitary, but they do tend to um, congregate together in some areas and we don't really know why they do that. So there's some rock caves and things where we might find lots of individuals there and we don't know whether they're going there to huddle together to um, conserve heat, or whether it's reproductive or some other social function. We don't really know why they do that. But when they're out and about foraging, they're usually solitary unless they're in a mating train when they're reproductive. Are there any other ways that they tend to stay cool that we haven't discussed? Yet. They use behaviour. So most animals, given the opportunity, will behaviourally thermoregulate. So they're obviously going to avoid adverse conditions if they can. So echidnas tend to be much more active in at night in the summertime and more active during the daytime in the winter. So they can modify their behaviour to try and exploit more favourable environmental conditions. And most animals will do that if they have the opportunity. Part of this uh, does part of this conversation is kind of linked to the changing climate and how it's affecting Australia and its wildlife. Have these uh, has the way that echidnas have been living in Australia changed dramatically over the past few years, or is it more so just slow adaptations to their new surroundings and new climate? So one of the challenges with climate change is that it's happening quite quickly. And so there's questions about whether species will have the capacity to either adapt um, or um, respond plastically to those changes. So echidnas are very long lived and they have relatively slow reproductive rates. So their capacity for adaptive change is uh, much less than species that reproduce much more quickly. Um, so adaption is a bit of a challenge, but we don't really understand their plasticity. So we don't know how much sort of physiological um, variability that there is in the populations. We know there's differences between the different populations, but one thing that we need to consider is how plastic some populations are and how responsive they can be to different climates. It's really interesting how it seems like uh, echidnas are an animal that not many people know much about. Has it been kind of just one of the sorts that is kind of hard to understand in general? 
Echidnas are really cryptic and they're not easy to come across. So we're really fortunate here that we have a study site where echidnas are abundant and are easy to find, um, but they're not always that, that easy to get hold of. Um, saying that, however, they are widely distributed and they're probably one of the best studied monotremes because they are relatively accessible. But so many of our native fauna, um, there's so many questions to ask about them um, and still to, to investigate. So lastly, just with back to the changing climate, um, are echidnas at all at risk of any forms of extinction or just becoming more and more unhealthy due to the changing climate? Or are they kind of in a state where they'll probably be okay and be able to adapt over time, even if it is a bit slower? Because they have such a wide geographical range and they're tolerant of so many different climates, they're probably one of the species that we're less least concerned about at the moment in general, but that doesn't mean that there may be regional um, impacts on their distribution and abundance. So particular populations or areas um, may be impacted by climate change and that may not um, impact the species as a whole, but echidnas do have important ecological roles. So for example, their digging is really important for turning over the soil and um, dealing with soil structure and um, plant growth. And therefore, if we were to lose echidnas from particular areas, this could have flow-on effects to the environment. Is there anything that uh, people at home can do to support uh, both your own efforts and just generally echidna and I guess more general Australian wildlife um, as a whole? Yes, so um, obviously we need to limit habitat destruction and limit climate change. So all those steps that we can take to preserve remaining habitats for species and to limit impacts of climate change are, are really important. That was Curtin University's Dr Christine Cooper chatting about how us Australian echidnas keep cool. And I wish some of your dozy mates in the media had got a fix on their job and started being reporters and journalists, not editorialists and analysts, which they're not qualified to do. Uh, prison company accepted, of course. The Wire. This is Melodia's Descent, Docent by Pavement. Uh, we're back with our last story, a first revision of the year after this. You're on The Wire on 95 BFM.
Unexpectedly heartfelt ukulele performance there from Iceland. It's Eurovision on 95BFM with our European correspondent Cameron Adams. It's been about a month's break since I last spoke to BFM correspondent, BFM European correspondent, sorry, Cameron Adams for Eurovision. But the region's war due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has unfortunately not slowed down. Nations have continued to support the latter country, and Bulgaria has been revealed to be having been supporting Ukraine since the beginning of the war, despite having attempted to keep their support under wraps. Additionally, climate protests have taken place in Germany, and abortion laws are being debated in Spain. We heard about all that and more in today's chat with Cam for Eurovision, starting off with an update on the war in Ukraine. The death toll of a Russian missile attack on an apartment building on Saturday in the city of Dnipro has reached 45 people, including six children. It's said to be the deadliest missile attack by on civilians by Russian forces since the summer. 14 people have died today in a helicopter crash next to a kindergarten in Kiev, including the interior minister Denis Monastrysky and two other deputies. Russian Wagner troops have taken the town of Solidar after heavy fighting. Controlling Solidar would bring Ukrainian positions in Bakhmut under further attack from Russian artillery. Wagner troops, some of which are convicts recruited in Russian prison camps, have been repeatedly attacking the town and have made slow but bloody progress to try and capture the city in eastern Ukraine. One AFP reporter, Armin Soldin, has quoted a Ukrainian ambulance driver in the region as saying, quote, it's like Verdun out there. It's been revealed Bulgaria was secretly supplying arms and fuel to Ukraine in the early months of the conflict. Bulgaria has previously come had previously come under criticism for not providing enough support for Ukraine. However, former PM Kirill Petkov stated that he had to do it on the, on the sly to avoid angering pro-Russian co- politicians, some of whom were his own coalition partners. The war in Ukraine has also caused a shakeup in German politics, with a shuffling of defence ministers. What's happened? Yeah, German politician Christine Lambrecht tendered her resignation this Monday after repeated criticisms and PR disasters. Her last and final scandal was a New Year's Eve message wishing support to Ukraine amongst raucous Berlin firework displays. The new minister is Boris Pistorius. And what it will bring? Well, maybe tanks. However, just tonight, Olaf Scholz has again shied away from any commitments. There have been constant calls by Ukraine and allies like Poland to provide Ukraine with its German tanks. Germany is already the second largest supplier of military aid to Ukraine. However, they have been very slow and cautious in their aid over fear of escalating tensions with Russia. They've supplied two air defence systems, including the Gepard, which has proved quite successful. The UK this week has announced that they will supply Ukraine with 12 of their own Challenger tanks, the first non-Soviet tanks provided to the country. Germany has said that they won't provide tanks uh, to Ukraine until the US does. There is a big meeting of Ukraine's allies in Germany on Friday, which will be discussing more military support for Ukraine, where it's rumoured that America may announce support for tanks. America earlier this month announced that they will be sending Bradley fighting vehicles for the first time, which has anti-tank capabilities. Staying with Germany, there was widespread protest last week over the clearing of a village for a coal mine. Can you tell us more? This is the village of Lutzerath in the west of the country, about 20 miles from Dusseldorf. In October of last year, energy firm RWE, with the support of the current coalition government, including the Greens, announced plans to expand the Garzweller surface mine, which would swallow up Lutzerath. Because of Europe's energy crisis, it was deemed necessary to, to expand the mine with Arthur Air claiming that the coal would be used this year to support Germany. However, a deal was negotiated with the company to phase out coal by 2030 instead of 2038. The coal being mined is actually lignite, a brown coal considered to be of low quality and high in carbon output. And what was the reaction to this agreement? 
Yeah, the, the agreement drew strong opposition. So Robert Harbeck, the climate change minister, and Mona Neubau, the vice premier of the state of North Rhine-Westphalia, are actually both members of the Green Party. So it was seen as a bit of a deal with the devil uh, and a betrayal by Green Party voters. There were also doubts on if the expansion was needed. Claudia Kempfert, the head of Department of Energy, Transportation and Environment at the German Institute for Economic Research, stated that, quote, our study shows that Lutzerath does not need to be destroyed in mind and that there is enough coal in the existing areas. Climate activists also claim that expanding the mine uh, and con Germany's continued coal usage put, put at risk its climate change obligations. There was a police operation last week of about 1,000 police officers evicting over 2,000 protesters camped out amongst the village. The village has been cleared now, uh, which included climate activist Greta Thunberg being arrested earlier this week. I definitely rec recommend looking up uh, photos of the mine. There's like a big earth swallowing machine, which looks straight out of June. It's crazy. Now in Spain, attempts to restrict abortion in one region has drawn strong debate. Could you tell us what's happened? Yeah, this is in the region of Castile and Leon. So the regional government brought in last rules last week that would mean women seeking an abortion must be offered optional access to unsolicited resources by doctors before starting the procedure. It would include a fetal heartbeat scan and psychological advice, although women were free to reject the options. It was brought in by the far-right regional vice president Juan Garcia Gallardo of the Vox Party, a junior coalition of the mainstream centre-right People's Party. Regional Prime Minister, regional President and member of the People's Party, Alfonso Fernandez Manueco, made a last-minute reversal and backed down from the changes, announcing on TV on Monday night that, quote, doctors won't be forced to do anything and women won't be forced to do anything, admitting that he could see it could show uh, co coercion for women wanting the procedure. Women will still have the option to request such scans if desired. Spain's regions usually have quite a lot of autonomy regarding healthcare. However, left-wing Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez had already, already announced plans to fight the changes if they were implemented. It was seen as a wider political issue ahead of elections, with regional elections in Castile and Leon going to happen in May, and national elections due to be held later this year. And Spain has recently liberalised and loosened up some of its abortion, abortion laws, right? Yeah, exactly. So in December... Uh, Spain's parliament passed a law allowing 16 and 17 year olds the ability to get an abortion without their par parents' consent. It also removed a mandatory three day waiting period for women wanting the procedure. And in a first for Europe, it also offered state funded leave for women suffering from painful periods. And in August, Spain also passed and quote, only yes means left, yes, consent law. In December, the EU was rocked by a corruption scandal implicating members of the European Parliament. Could you give us an update on this investigation? Yeah, last month, uh, four people were arrested by Belgian authorities under suspicion of accepting bribes by foreign countries. Greek MEP and now sacked European Par Parliament Vice President Eva Kaili, former Italian MEP Antonio Penzeri, Eva Kaili's partner Frances Francesco Giorgi, and lobbyist Nicolo Figa-Talamanca were all arrested in raids, which also uncovered over 1 million euro in cash in total. It's been reported that Qatar and Morocco are the countries involved. However, both countries deny all allegations. According to Belgian prosecutors yesterday, Antonio Penzeri has agreed to a, quote, tell-all deal uh, with prosecutors in exchange for a lighter sentence. Francesco Giorgi is also reported by the BBC to have already confessed to his role in the scandal. So prosecutors are continuing their investigations and have already sought to lift immunity for two other MEPs, Belgian Mark Tarabella and Italian Andrea Cozzolino. And lastly, we've got some good news coming out of England for once, with hepatitis C due to be eradicated by 2025. Yeah, this is amazing news coming out of the NHS last month. 
Um, they've announced they're on track to eliminate hepatitis C in England by 2025, five years ahead of the 2030 WHO target. This is being attributed to a five-year, one billion pound contract of antiviral drugs for hepatitis C patients and has been attributed to a 35% drop in deaths. The NHS scheme has helped cure over 70,000 patients patients and it's stated that people in the most deprived communities have seen the biggest benefit with 80% of treatments being provided to the most deprived half of the population. That was 95 BFM European correspondent Cameron Adams reporting live from Germany for Eurovision this week. Macedonia with a reggae twist. That was Eurovision on 95 BFM. That was The Wire. Ko ere te ho takakatoa mō tēnei wiki, nei te mihi ki a koutou katoa i koreroa mai ki au mō tēnei raa. That is a wrap on the Thursday Wire for the 19th of January. Thank you to everyone who spoke with us today. Pharmac Director of Operations Lisa Williams, Sarah Helm from the New Zealand Drug Foundation, UA Professor Jen Eldridge, Christine Cooper from Curtin University, and lastly, BFM European Correspondent Cameron Adams. Uh, nei rā hoki te mihi. Thank you for tuning in. The wonderful secret is up next. You are listening to 95 BFM. That was a 95 BFM podcast. Support 95 BFM with a B card. Go to 95BFM.com/slash sign up.